Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome to episode 6, The Life of Numa Pompilius, a man who never wanted to be king, a man with a deep faith in the gods, topped off with a philosophy, abhorrently against an aggression and anger-driven society forever, forever at war, depriving Rome's citizens of more godly, and more peaceful societal improvements. If it's said Romulus gifted the Romans with a grand military tradition and supporting institutions which would last for a millennia, then Numa, as a counter to military traditions, gifted the Romans grand religious traditions and supporting religious institutions, which would last for a millennia or more also. Both of these would have profound influence on Roman life. Rome with her first two, well, I guess for accuracy's sake we should say three kings, as you may remember, Tatius did co-rule with Romulus for a five-year period before his collision course with death, set up Rome's two most important ingredients for success which would stand the test of time through various iterations of the Roman political structure. It's remarkable how the Roman institutions we hear so much about in later Roman history were already in place by the end of Numa's reign. Yeah, it is quite amazing indeed. And what is also interesting is the lengths future Roman families would go to to show their stock goes all the way back to Numa and most certainly Romulus. Plutarch reveals there was no better evidence of this than the many pedigrees of noble, noble Roman families in Plutarch's time who proudly traced their lineage back to Numa and Romulus, forming the foundational criteria for the senatorial class known as the patricians. However, the constructs of the patrician class shall be saved for future episodes as we move into the Roman Republican age. So before we move forward, I'm just going to give a quick recap of what happened in Romulus Part 2. After founding Rome in many of her traditions, Romulus was said to have disappeared in a storm, and the Senate proclaimed him that he had ascended to heaven. So for now, Romulus is a god, and Numa would be busy introducing Romans to a philosophy of peaceful relationship with Rome's neighbors, and striving to perfect what they already were given with religious piety being portrayed as a priority above all else, even one's duty to Rome in the most severe situations. So who was Numa? Well, before we push into his mundane pre-kingship life, Plutarch describes that the exact time of Numa's reign was still debated among the historian class, with some historians such as Clodius making a valid point that the ancient registers of Rome were lost during the first sacking of Rome carried out by the Gauls, so records from that time have been lost to the ages. Others say the legend that Numa was a world scholar and acquaintance or student of Pythagoras is wrong, and that Numa merely possessed a natural intelligence, which needed no help from the likes of great minds like Pythagoras. Also, ancient sources, including the likes of Plutarch and Livy, have backed this conclusion that Numa was not a contemporary of Pythagoras for one obvious reason. The consensus being that Pythagoras was not even born until at least 100 years after Numa's death in 670 BC, so it could not be him. Obviously, this legend of Numa being a Pythagoras contemporary was an invention of later centuries, but I wonder why it was felt Numa needed a Pythagoras connection at all. Like, I wonder if it has something to do with explaining Numa's peaceful philosophy and religious focus, which was so different from the Roman military focus. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question and perhaps was a combination of justification for Numa's policies and perhaps build Numa as a leader worth aligning one's family pedigree with. It is interesting and should we know that there were other ancients named Pythagoras and perhaps, as Plutarch seems to indicate, a champion by the name Pythagoras of Sparta of the 16th Olympiad, held in Numa's third year in power, may have had the ear of the king and helped him develop some of his policies. This also jives better with history where the Sabines, whom Numa was one, 
considered themselves descendants and even colonies of the Lacedaemonians, or as we know them, Spartans. So Pythagoras of Sparta seems a more logical acquaintance of Numa than Pythagoras of Samos, the famous one born many decades later. So while the exact time in whom Numa's contemporaries were is up for a bit of debate, we can be sure he succeeded Romulus and ruled until his death in 670 BC, which is not disputed. Right, and just like with Greek history, as we move through the centuries, facts become more reliable and are mixed with less and less myth. Ryan, that is a great point because, well, when Numa's reign started may not be fully known, the ending is much more certain. So where does the story of Numa begin? And how did a man so unadorned, when approached by the Senate to become king, become a leading candidate for the kingship? Yeah, and to add another question, it looks like the transition from Romulus to Numa was violence-free, which is rarely seen in these sort of transitions. So the other question might also be, how did a man who didn't want to be king do so without any violent episodes? These are honestly some of the main questions Plutarch addresses. I do personally believe that Numa may have been one of the greatest leading men during Rome's long history. And to double down this assertion, I challenge everyone listening to make a comparison between Numa and other Roman leaders they feel were the best of the best, and let us know what you think. Our comments on the blog page are always open at plutarchsgreeksromans.com slash blog. I will circle back to this at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. So the story of Numa really begins after Romulus passes from the living world to the heavens, and is enshrined as a god, leaving Rome rudderless, with Apophilus very much still in support of Romulus, and a senate with whom some of the populace were suspicious of their possible role in the disappearance of Romulus. It is safe to say the senate's approval rankings were probably in the toilet around this time. This would be the first time that Rome would have to grapple with the question of secession, and miraculously what emerged was a thoughtful, equitable, and peaceful process, unfortunately would rarely be seen again in future power struggles. For these early Romans, the question was how do we elect a new king with such promise as to propel Rome above and beyond where Romulus left off? While there were some disputes between senators and other wealthy landowners as to process, they all agreed a king was required. The fact the leading class was all in agreement that a king was needed, the task was made a little easier. So fast forward the process of choosing a new emperor in the first centuries after Christ, the differences between Numa's electoral process and future processes is quite clear. So what was so different between the ascension of Numa to the throne and other future bloodbaths that usually follow the cho- a choice for emperor? Well, simply put, the Romans created a political and peaceful process to choose their new king. In the building of Rome, both the Sabines and Romans worked together to build a city of equals, and it was decided that the choosing of a new king would also be done together. So the Senate, which was now a mixture of Romans and Sabines and numbering around 150, set out to create a new form of government, which the Romans called interregnum, and would manage Rome during the transition between kings. This interregnum government would fulfill two main purposes. The first to ensure the state continued to function, ensuring no interruptions to daily Roman life. The second was to decide on candidates for the kingship, and then vote on the candidates. It is possible that the formation of the interregnum was a model for the Republic, where consuls took the place of the king and the election process became numerous, being applied annually for consuls, while kings, once elected, remained in power until they left the throne. So this new interregnum government would see the 150 senators interchangeably assume the role of the office of the supreme magistrate, and each in succession with the authority of royalty would conduct the ritual sacrifices and administer the business of the people for six hours by day and successor taking over for six hours at night, 
ensuring no one senator grew drunk with power and eliminating senatorial rivalry or jealousy in general. Wow, six hours as dictator is a very short term in office. And I thought the office of consul, which changed every year, had a short term. <laughs> yeah, perhaps the idea of the of the Roman uh, Roman's office of dictator grew out of the knowledge that sometimes a more lengthy rule was needed in times of crisis. However, it was not lost in the populace that this new interregnum government quite possibly was a ruse to continue to rule Rome through this method, never choosing a new king, and in fact, turning Rome into a sort of oligarchy. As it turns out, the Senate did not have ambitions for an oligarchy, as a king would be chosen in quick order as the Senate came to a bipartisan agreement, that the Roman senators would vote for whom they thought was the best Sabine to become candidate, and the Sabine senators would choose whom they felt is the best Roman candidate for the general election. Plutarch writes of this astonishing compromise by saying, quote, Both parties came at length to the conclusion that the one should choose a king out of the body of the other. The Romans make choice, choice of a Sabine, or the Sabines name a Roman. This was esteemed the best expedient to put an end to all party spirit, and the prince who should be chosen would have an equal affection to the one party as his electors, and the other as his kinsmen. So after much debate... The Romans named Numa Pompilius of the Sabines, whom the Sabines embraced themselves and voted alongside the Roman senatorial colleagues, confirming Numa as Rome's second king. Next on the docket, the Senate needed to tell Numa the news and hope he received this eternal gift with open arms and would end the interregnum and form a new kingship to bring prosperity to Rome. So did the uh, Sabines choose a Roman as a possible candidate? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking too, um, but Plutarch does not mention much about their pick at this point, other than that the Sabine chose someone who is known to be from a lineage of their of the original Romans. Um, we do come across possible choices made a little later in the episode, so stay tuned. So with the election over, the Senate dispatched senators to bring Numa to Rome and crown him king of the Romans. The Roman kingship was now fully cemented, and I dare say Numa would be the last good king until the formation and adoption of the Republic some 150 years or so later. But before we venture too much further, I want to slow things down and jump into some basics, like who the heck was Numa? And what was he all about? Sounds like he wasn't really connected to the Roman political scene since they needed to go tell him about the news. Seems like an interesting choice for a king. Absolutely. Most leaders, leaders typically emerge victorious only after years of political maneuvering and one-upmanships. This, I can tell you, was not Numa's style. However, the reasons Numa was chosen will become clearer shortly. Numa hailed from the famous Sabine city of Kyrs, and Plutarch writes his father was a wealthy man who bore at least four male children. Plutarch next describes that Numa's birth was divinely ordered, as he was said to have been born on April 21st, the day Rome was founded. Yet again, I shared the birthday of another great Roman. <laughs> Numa and Rome are an illustrious company. Dang straight. And I have a feeling I'll be using this joke every time April 21st gets brought up <laughs> regarding famous Romans. So be forewarned. So was Numa really born April 21st? Probably not. But maybe he was an April baby. And once ascended, perhaps April 21st was massaged in to further bring credibility to his policies of faith and philosophy and why he was so dedicated to such pursuits. Plutarch sums up Numa's pre-royalty life nicely as follows, quote, Numa was endued with a soul rarely tempered by nature and disposed to virtue which he had yet more subdued by discipline, a severe life and the study of philosophy, means which had not only succeeded in expelling the basier passions, 
but also the violent and rapacious temper which barbarians are apt to think highly of. True bravery, in his judgment, was regarded as consisting in the subjugation of our passions by reason. Further, Plutarch writes, he banished all luxury and softness from his own home, and while citizens alike and strangers found in him an incorruptible judge and counsellor, in private he devoted himself not to amusement or lucre, but to the worship of the immortal gods and the rational contemplation of their divine power and nature. So famous was he that Tatius, the colleague of Romulus, chose him for his son-in-law and gave him his only daughter, which, however, did not stimulate his vanity to desire to dwell with his father-in-law at Rome. He rather chose to inhabit with his Sabines and cherish his own father in his old age, and Tatia also preferred the private condition of her husband before the honors and splendor she might have enjoyed with her father in Rome. So now it's becoming much clearer as to why Numa was a candidate for the kingship in the first place and why the Sabines overwhelmingly supported their Roman senatorial colleagues' choice of Numa. Additionally, Numa was about 40 when he was crowned, allowing for a possible long and stabilizing period, not truly seen again until Augustus' reign. So before we continue, I just want to jump back to the infamous interregnum the Senate set up to manage the kingdom while they searched for a new king for a moment. Imagine today's political climate, one party had to choose a leader from the other, then an entire vote on the two was taken. I would say the entire chamber would never come to a vote, let alone even choosing candidates. So I'd like to think the ancient Romans of this time were not more politically civil or reasonable than we are today, but rather was new as heritage and pursuits of peace, faith, and philosophy, which got him the support from the entire Senate. I'd like to think that. Yeah, it is hard to imagine such a vote occurring at all in the modern political climate. <laughs> yeah. So maybe Numa really was an individual who stood out because of his personal virtue. Yeah, definitely. And Numi really intrigued me for the more I read and during my research, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop and learned Numa was already styled a patrician with respectful lineage. So when the shoe did drop, I actually did not lose much admiration for Numa as he was a solid choice to succeed Romulus regardless of his societal standing. So as already mentioned, the Roman Senate dispatched two popular senators, Proculus and Valetheus, both of whom many presumed would have been chosen as king themselves. The two made little preparations for their conversation with Numa, as they assumed anyone offered a kingdom would need little coaxing to accept. Obviously, Proclus and Valetus did not know Numa very well, and that it would take more than a mere offering of the kingdom to awaken a sense of duty to abandon his quiet and peaceful life, for a life full of uncertainty and a capital which was founded and grew through warfare, the opposite of Numa's approach to all earthly pursuits. Numa brought his father and kinsman Marcius with him when he responded to the Senate's offer. I mean, who would not want their dad and best friend there for support when making such an important decision? I know I would. Plutarch quotes Numa as falls while the two bewildered senators watched and listened to a man turn down a kingdom. Quote, Every alteration of a man's life is dangerous to him, but madness only could induce one who needs nothing and is satisfied with everything, to quit a life he is accustomed to, which, whatever else it is deficient in, at any rate has the advantage of certainty over one wholly doubtful and unknown. Though indeed the difficulties of this government cannot even be called unknown, Ramas, who first held it, did not escape the suspicion of having plotted against the life of his colleague Tatius, nor the Senate the like accusation of having treasonably murdered Romulus. Yet Romulus had the advantage to be thought divinely born and miraculously preserved and nurtured. My birth was mortal. 
I was reared and instructed by men that are known to you. The very points of my character that are most commended mark me as unfit to reign. Love of retirement and studies inconsistent with business. A passion that has become inveterate in me for peace, for unwarlike occupations, and for the society of men whose meetings are but those of worship and of kindly intercourse, whose lives in general are spent upon their farms and their pastures. I should but me, methinks a laughingstock, should go about to inculcate the worship of the gods and give lessons in the love of justice and the abhorrence of violence in war to a city whose needs are rather for a captain than for a king. Wow, Numa really understood what he would be getting himself into. He did, yes, and also provided a glimpse of what he, you know, what his rule may look like, which apparently did not scare away the senators, for they probably were thinking, if we return empty-handed, the interregnum government could collapse, as Numa was the only choice both the Romans and Sabans could agree on. So if the senators failed attempt to convince Numa, Numa's father and Marcius took the four-year-old would-be king aside and were able to convince Numa that this offering was more than the plea from the Senate and was actually a reward from God for his lifetime of piety and unwavering pursuit of peace, religion, and philosophy, where perhaps Numa could introduce to the Romans' life his version of life and success, making the Romans a more well-rounded and moral society. Numa, being moved by these words, accepted the kingdom, not from the Senate, but from the wise counsel of his father and friend Marcius. So with Dad's touch, Numa was on board and broke the news to the senators, whom rejoiced and hailed Numa as king of the Romans. I'm sure the senators were incredibly happy at the prospects of a long rule to stabilize the kingdom and avoid the dangerous business of having to choose another king. Yeah, I'd have to say yes, as who knows how much longer the interregnum would have lasted before a power server broke out if the senators had returned with no king on their side. So with Numa reluctantly accepting the throne, all eyes turned to the crowning of the new king and the highly anticipated normalization of the government, with Numa as king and the Senate advising the king and executing his and the people's will for the betterment of Roman society. Must have been exciting times. And I think after Romulus, there was a lot of uncertainty, especially since Romulus was such a prominent figure, and questions whether anyone could fill his sandilia, the Roman word for sandals, and continued to grow Rome and bring prosperity to her people with a legitimate question. But once Numa ascended, the people now had their new political structure for the time being, and seemed as if they had confidence in it. Before Numa would leave his home city of Kurs, he bid a last farewell through performing divine sacrifices, said goodbye to his father in Marcius, and proceeded with the senators back to Rome, where messengers sent ahead of their journey ensured an extremely warm welcome from the Curtis which is the name for the Roman populace, and the Senate. Rome, being so rejoiced by the news, opened all their temples and made large sacrifices to the gods in preparation for what many were hoping was a new kingdom, elevating the Romans to new heights not seen before. I wonder how the senators felt about the people being so happy to see their time and power come to an end. <laughs> I, I never thought about that, but yeah, while they were also rejoicing, they must have felt a bit like, wow, did we really do that bad a job? also probably was a reality check for some of these senators who were becoming accustomed to the power during the interregnum that the real power lies with the throne, simply because the people say so. Well, in any event, the people seem to have approved of the choice of Numa as their new king. Yep, it seems that way. But the question remains, can Numa keep it that way? So with Numa's entrance to the city rivaling the pomp and fare of Ramus's first triumphs, setting the backdrop for Numa's crowning, which began with his entering the forum to cheers and acclamations, where Spurius Vatilius, 
who was the senator in charge that particular day, put Numa's candidacy for the throne to a vote, which was unanimous in the decision officially crowning Numa Pompilius the second king of Rome. The Senate next brought to Numa the regalities and robes of authority to complete the passing of power, but Numa refused until he could first consult and be confirmed by the gods prior to acceptance from the mortal world. Numa followed by a procession of priests and augurs, leaving the senators and the people waiting patiently at the bottom of the capital, ascended the capital, which at that time was called the Tarpeian Hill, where the chief augurs covered Numa's head, turned his face south, and standing behind him prayed, while glancing quickly about the room looking for signs from the gods. As time passed, a silence fell over the capital as a growing crowd outside kept the silence going as anticipation of Numa's holy confirmation mounted. Eventually, an auspicious flock of birds appeared and flew by on the right, confirming Numa was approved by the gods. Remember when Romulus and Remus settled the question where Rome would be built by the sighting of vultures? Birds were a holy symbol of divinity, an important symbol to the ancient Romans. So with Numa being convinced himself he had been confirmed by both the gods and the mortals they oversee, he dressed in his royal robes and disembarked himself from the capital and descended to the people where he was rejoiced and hailed the holy king. Numa was off to the races. It's remarkable that it was Numa himself who insisted on these multiple layers of divine confirmation. I mean, what if no birds had flown by? At what point would the chief augur and Numa break from prayer and say, well... No signs that the gods want me as king. Sorry I wasted everyone's time. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I have a feeling there were, you know, some empty bird cages laying around the capital <laughs> after the procession, um, you know, ended. But yes, good point. It sounds like Numa was cementing his power by seeking divine support for his rule, where he could say, hey, the gods chose me, and you were there. And this would be no different from the European kings' claims they were God's messengers on earth to legitimize their ascension to the thrones. So to recap... Numa's journey to head of state was unusual in that Numa was a man who bucked traditional Roman norms, had a distaste for warfare, refused to bathe in his sunshine, Tatius' adoption surely would have brought him, remained committed to peace in the pursuit of farming, religious piety, and philosophy, who turned down the Senate's offer to be named king, only being swayed by his family and close acquaintances, whom delayed his crowning until the gods gave the green lights, in my opinion, truly was bringing a new kingdom to Rome. It really does seem to have been a 180-degree pivot away from Romulan politics. That is not a Star Trek reference, <laughs> though I do support Star Trek references. <laughs> oh, I love it. And you could say the Romans, you know, as seen in Star Trek, were modeled after Romulus and traditional Roman culture, and probably not Numa. Okay, so Numa has a lot to live up to, and we begin with his very first act as king, which to my amazement was a symbol of trust between king and his people where he disbanded Romulus's lifeguard, or was called by him Salerius in Latin, consisting of 300 well-trained soldiers. And Plutarch quotes Numa as follows, quote, The Numa would not distrust those who put confidence in him, nor rule over people who distrusted him. In the same stroke, while he dismantled one symbol of Romulus, he created two new priests, one for Jupiter and one for Mars, and a third for Romulus himself, his next task was to bring down the aggression found in Rome and soften her people up a bit. Plutarch quotes Plato's expression of a city in high fever to describe Rome at this time. So Numa set out to soften the Romans through incorporating more religious activities and duties into their lives. Numa made religious sacrifice and processions common activities, and even officiated most of these rituals himself to lead by example to try to quell Romans, Romans' fury 
and warlike tempers. Likewise, in his attempt to pacify the Romans a bit, he indoctrinated a sense of fear of the gods' wrath through stories of seeing apparitions and strange voices instilling a sense of fear of the supernatural, where Romans would slowly incorporate more and more religious activities into their daily lives, leaving less time for warlike thoughts. Numa also forbade any Roman to represent God in the form of man or animal, nor were paintings or graven images or any other representations allowed, leaving temples bare of religious images which would last approximately for the next 170 years. Just as a side note, when Numa sacrificed, he did so with the least important commodities, saving livestock, and instead used flour, red wine, and other inexpensive offerings. I guess the gods under Numa were vegetarians, and maybe were sick of the constant barbecue of animal sacrifice. So these religious policies enacted by Numa did provide some proof that perhaps Numa was a Pythagoras contemporary. Because the mathematician Pythagoras and his followers were vegetarians? <laughs> yeah, that could be it. But Plutarch has already dismissed this possibility because Pythagoras was believed to have been born many decades later. So we move beyond this obsession that seems to swirl around Numa, that he was somehow connected with Pythagoras. We will leave this aspect of Numa's life in the rear view, and who knows, maybe we should have Pythagoras to a list of episodes, as I am very curious about him now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So where does Numa go from here? Well, his next step is to set religion up as its own institution through the creation of the original constitution of the priests called the Pontifices, for which Numa was the first. The word Pontifices comes from potents or powerful because they help serve as the gods who have ultimate power over all living beings. So what was the role of the office of Pontifex Maximus or the chief priest? Simply put, these priests were to declare and interpret the divine law and preside over sacred rites. Additionally, they were responsible for developing rules for public ceremonies and regulate the sacrifices and religious rituals of private persons as well so that everyone in the kingdom was using uniform rules and guidelines for such activities. Further, the Pontifex Maximus was responsible for the Vestal Virgins who kept the eternal fire, which were thought to be so pure that only a virgin who was considered pristine could manage this holy eternal fire and not offend the gods in doing so. Others say their only role was to keep the flames lit, the others that they held and conceived or concealed divine secrets known only to them. Regardless of their purpose, we know they existed and we know Numa appointed the first two vestals, Gigania and Virinia, followed by Canulia and Tarpeia. King Servilius, the sixth king of Rome, added two more vestals and the number would stand at four through Plutarch's time and beyond. So continuing with the vestals, Numa further prescribed extremely specific statutes for the vestals. Vestals had to swear an oath of virginity for at least 30 years. The first 10, they were considered in training, learning their duties. The second 10, performing their duties. And the third 10, teaching new Vestals their duties. Once the 30 years of services ended, they were free to pursue any lifestyle they pleased. I wonder how these Vestals, after 30 years of strict living conditions and virginity, fared when their service ended. That's a great point. Plutarch mentions that many stayed close by and lived out their days how they lived during their time as a Vestal, as many who didn't came to regret their subsequent actions of sex and bearing children and other things they were forbade from participating for so many years. I guess one could say they became very institutionalized, and making change was very difficult. However, it seems Numa realized and respected the Vestal's faith and commitment to their careers as a virgin and firekeeper as he granted them many privileges not typically accustomed to women of the time. These privileges start out tame, but get stranger and stranger as the list goes on. 
So vessels were able to make a will during the lifetime of their father and could not be willed away to another man. Vessels were granted free reign to manage their own affairs that did not require a tutor or administrator, which was usually only granted to women who had three or more children. Further, when these vessels chose to travel, they always had to carry the fasces, which was a Roman symbol thought originally from the Etruscans, and if by chance during their travels they come across a prisoner on his way to be executed, the execution would be relinquished and the prisoner set free after oath was made by the vestal that the chance meeting was not a setup. Told you it starts to get strange. To add to the strangeness, if anyone happened to press against the chair the vessels were traveling in, that offender would be put to death on the spot. In ancient times, the wealthy and apparently the vessels would have slaves or other members of the serving class carry them by chair from place to place. So I guess if someone pressed into the chair, this could cause a serious accident if the chair toppled. Not sure death is warranted, but perhaps Numa was merely elevating the ex-vestals and providing them a sense of importance and respect typically given to senators and other high-born Romans. So while the vestals were treated well while they were a practicing vestal, and even more so afterwards, Numa did prescribe a very harsh punishment in the event a vestal broke any vow, regardless how minor, but typically was carried out when a vestal specifically broke her vow of celibacy. If a vestal were proved to have broken such a vow as having sex, the high priest would be the only person allowed to exact punishment for this crime. This was not a matter of state, but a matter of the gods. Just to warn people who are listening, the punishment is a bit draconian, where the high priest would remove the clothing of the vestal, scorn her in the dark with a curtain drawn between them, and then she would be buried alive at the gate called the Colinia after a ceremony performed by the high priest in the form. So Numa did have a dark side. Ah, uh, definitely. But one can imagine that, you know, Numa took appeasing the gods and commitments he makes to them so seriously, and with this sort of draconian punishment, sends a very strong signal to the gods that the Romans are serious about the Vestals and their commitments to them, and we're sure this sort of crime is infrequent to keep favor with the gods. While it all sounds silly to us today, it was particularly important in those times. Plutarch also credits Numa with the building of the Temple Vesta, which was meant as a repository of the holy fire the Vestals were responsible for. The temple was built in a circular form representing not the earth, but the universe. universe. Other historians do mention the building shape was representative of the time where homes were built in circular fashion, and since the Vesta was originally celebrated in these private homes, perhaps the construction drew its inspiration from those early Roman structures. It's becoming quite obvious that Numa was entirely focused on bringing religion into the mainstream, and it seems it was working. No, I definitely agree, Ryan. And, you know, Numa's, you know, Numa was literally setting the religious order in Rome from basically scratch, unifying religious rites and ceremonies so old Rome were doing the same thing. Numa also gave all the power of religious practice in Rome to the priests who began to control every aspect of Roman's religious life. An example of this was the days of mourning for a loved one had strict guidelines to be followed. So for those who perished between birth and three years old, no mourning was allowed. While ages four through ten, one could mourn for as many months as their child was old, with the longest mourning period allowed was 10 months, which was allotted to women who had lost their husband. Not sure the logic behind all this, but again, while this may seem silly today, in those times, following religious order was paramount in society. I wonder how this was enforced, and I wonder how parents of toddlers who perished were supposed to not mourn. Well, Ryan, I guess they would smile, nod, and cry on the inside, I suppose. <laughs> but very good point. To add to Numa's mounting accomplishments, Plutarch credits Numa with the creation of several other orders of the priests, two of which became prominent. Plutarch starts with the Fessialis, calling them the Guardians of Peace, a 
as her primary role was to settle disputes through words, not sword, as it was not allowable for those involved in disputes to take up arms until all paths of accommodation had been thoroughly investigated. Numa's philosophy, similar to the Greeks, Plutarch describes that we call it peace when disputes are settled by words and not by force. And later Romans blamed the Gauls sacking of Rome in 387 BC for Roman society not following the orders of the Thessalius. So I guess it was the Roman populace who brought on the Gauls and not the failures of the military and leaders of the time. I think we all know the truth, but perhaps that was spin room Rome in the time. Plutarch next moves on to detail the order of the Salii, whom were born likely out of myth during a great pestilence which plagued Rome and Italy during the eighth year of Numa's reign. Plutarch tells a tale of a brazen target, which Agiria, a nymph goddess, not what you're thinking, who was a divine consort and consort to Numa, and the inspirational gods of literature, sciences, and the arts, claimed this brazen target, which we assume was some sort of object, was sent to Rome by the gods as a cure for the pestilence and to ensure was not stolen by thieves. Numa had 11 more made as exact replicas. Numa was apparently obsessed with finding a true replica, a replica to keep the true target safe, and sent word for all artificers, or skilled labor in Rome, to come to try their hand at replication. None made the cut until a man named Mamurius Veturius made the 11 replicas so similar to the original that Numa himself could not pick out the original. So if the target or the cure to the pestilence now properly disguised, they needed a place where they could be kept safe. Numa first decided to consecrate the marshy water surrounding the place where the target fell and would be used for the vessels to wash their penetralia, as the Romans used this word to describe, at least in this case, the vestal's private parts, so they could wash themselves with holy water. So with the area surrounding the target landing zone being consecrated, appeasing the muses, Numa made the order of the Salai, a group of priests from whom would be charged with keeping the twelve targets safe in a temple at the center of the consecrated land and could only be approached by the vessels and the Salite priests. I mean, obviously this is a tall tale, but I wonder where the idea for it came from. Like, did the plague end, and then this whole story of a brazen target was invented to highlight the importance of religious piety, maybe? Yeah, very good point, Ryan. I mean, that's very possible. I mean, it was a construct to maybe help explain why the pestilence began and why it eventually, you know, receded and the Romans making sure not to repeat the same offense again the against the gods in the future. What is that old saying? Fool me once. Point is, we won't anger the gods again and we'll be good Romans. Regardless, Numa had further entrenched religious ideals into the Roman psyche and his relentless push for a religious state was coming closer and closer every, every day to fruition. It really seems Plutarch is focusing solely on Numa's religious accomplishment, so his turn to Numa's dwelling was a bit of a welcome relief, even if it was short-lived. Numa, shortly after the pestilence had abated, built the Regia, or King's House, situated a short distance from the Vestal Temple, and this is where Numa lived and spent most of his days. He was also said to have had a home on Mount Cornelius, one of Rome's famous seven hills, previously occupied by a small Sabine tribe which Plutarch describes was a sort of attraction in his time. Numa, in his fight to make religious ceremony the most important endeavor to the Romans, outlawed noise in the streets and, forbid, and forbade Romans from worshipping outside unless for a particular ceremony or ritual. He did this to ensure Romans had no distractions from the duties of the gods and wanted the gods to know they have Rome's full attention. Not so dissimilar to customs in the modern religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam around days of worship. I know, that's a very good uh, parallel there. 
Numa was creating a peaceful and dedicated time for Romans to worship, undisturbed by the pressures of their normal lives, which likely were very tough going. Finally, Plutarch, for the remainder of the episode, speaks in some of Numa's other non-religious accomplishments. However, some of the details have religious undertones, but speak to his wider policies of peace, forgiveness, philosophy, skilled labor, and a sense of Roman oneness. Numa's worldview, or peace as discussed already, was a driving factor in everything that Numa did for the Romans. Numa's stated goal was to bring organized religion into Roman lives and to reduce the aggressiveness of the Romans through peaceful alternatives to occupy their minds in time. Numa also built the temple's faith in Terminus, the latter being inspired by the god Terminus or Boundary, both of which would have powerful impacts on Roman culture, culture existing in Plutarch's day and beyond. For Numa taught the Romans that the name Faith was the most solemn oath one could take. The expression have faith had a more literal meaning in ancient Rome compared to our have faith expression today. While the Temple of Faith mainly had religious implications, the Temple of Terminus was an accolade for the god Terminus or Boundary, which would serve a more basic function in Roman culture, where both public and private land was marked with boundary rocks preventing disputes from aggressive landowners. Pudrick goes on to very clearly state that it was Numa who would bring the idea of legal boundaries within Rome and her territories and to the borders of Rome herself and writes, For boundaries are indeed a defense to those who choose to observe them, but are only a testimony against the dishonesty of those who break through them. The truth is the portion of lands which the Romans possessed at the beginning was very narrow until Romulus enlarged them by war. All whose accusations Numa now divided amongst the indigent commonality wishing to do away with that extreme want which is a compulsion to dishonesty and by turning the people to husbandry to bring them as well as their lands into better order. For there is no employment that gives so keen and quick a relish for peace as husbandry and country life which leaves in men all that kind of courage that makes them ready to fight in defense of their own while it destroys a license that breaks out into acts of injustice rapacity. So maybe Numa's hope for a more passive and peaceful future for Rome relied on a sense of a new concept of boundaries. And if Romans respected their fellow citizens' boundaries, maybe this would extend to respecting other cities and states as well. Nailed it. Absolutely. And in this case, the Temple of Terminus effect was less religious um, and more to the building of Roman morality. With the accomplishments stacking, Plutarch describes Numa's next measure as one of his most commended which was his distribution of the people by their trades into companies or guilds. The two current divisions of the Roman populace, I believe Plutarch was referring, was a Roman or Sabine, or being labeled a Romulan or a Tatian. Numa felt this stood in the way of true unity, as both sides viewed the other with a measure of disdain and distrust. Numa's hoped that this old division would be replaced by more respectful divisions through his creation of companies of musicians, goldsmiths, Carpenters, dyers, shoemakers, skinners, braziers, and potters would bring together Roman similarities and not lay in their dissimilarities whole progress back in Rome. Numa further made the Roman family unit more sacred through repealing the old laws which allowed Roman fathers to sell their children as slaves, where women felt their marriage in a way was you know, to birth and raise slaves as opposed to raising children in a family under the gods and instilling a stronger sense of family amongst them all. No longer were Roman families a supply of slaves for the state, though I assume a black market quickly emerged. Numa is also credited for uh, rearranging the Roman calendar so it had a full 12 months. 
Plutarch, after exhausting Numa's accomplishments, begins to wrap up his biography through Numa's peacetime record, example by Numa's own creation at his temple called the Gates of War, which were open during warfare and closed during peace. Plutarch tells us that during Numa's reign, the gates remained closed for the entire 43 years of, Numa, of Numa's rule, which one would think was a sign of a long and glorious peace to come. But as Plutarch notes, in the next 700 years to his time, the gates had only been shut twice since previously by a pair of consuls in the mid-republic, and again after the republic fell and Augustus's long reign cemented the princeps. So, Numa's policy of boundaries, at least, uh, with regards to competitor states, didn't stick around. Yeah, I would agree. However, at least it did force Romans to further ensure war was justified, whether imaginary or not, as the people had to first be convinced, and this took more precedence moving forward. And this practice of legitimizing a war to gain popular support is not uncommon even today. Numa's policies even rubbed off on neighboring states, which began to emulate Rome, reducing their flair for warfare. Numa had helped to lower the aggressive nature of Middle Italy, which would help integrate um, these people by future Roman conquests. I've also argued that these policies helped build the foundation for Italy being the center and original province of Rome when she began to expand outside of Italy. Numa, in my opinion, was one of the greatest leaders of Rome and one of the few thought leaders to grace the regalia, consulship or princeps, followed Romulus who set up Rome's military and political structures, while setting up Rome's moral culture through introductions of organized religion, setting internal and external boundaries, promoting a simple life of agriculture, removing old divisions between Romans and Sabines, improving the family unit, and abstaining from war for 43 years until his natural death in his 80s. It was quite a rule, and his legacy still reverberates today. So to end the episode, I asked everyone listening, what do you think about Numa? Does he compare with Augustus? Is he worthy of being the top 10 best Roman leaders, spanning both the kingship, the republic, the empire, and eventually the Eastern Empire? My answer is yes. Let us know your thoughts in our blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for our next episode, part one of a two-parter diving into the eventful lives of the Athenians, Themistocles, and Aristides. Feel free to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using, and head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.com.